Super. Okay, I think we're going to start. Um, welcome, everybody. I'm glad everybody came out for this. My name is Beth Haas. I'm a psychiatrist in private practice and a member of the executive committee for the Helix Center. Um, and I've been asked to moderate this a little bit last minute, so bear with me. Um, it's not my area. But we're here today to talk about secrecy, privacy, transparency, openness, and related concepts. You know, since Freud's early when psychopathology stemmed from secrets that one part of the mind kept from another, to Winnicott's idea that for the development of self and to allow the child to overcome shame and narcissistic humiliation, psychoanalysis has always been interested in secrets. And Western literature also has been interested in secrets, from Oedipus to Prometheus Bound, where the main character spends the entire play resisting the attempt of one character after another to get his secret out from him. So the secret and its gradual revelation serves uh, many, many uh, literary and, and psychoanalytic functions. And liberal political thought is obviously predicated on the autonomy of individual cells and the maintenance of secrets as an aspect of selfhood. So we're here to talk about these ideas today in an age of NSA surveillance and prison access to our Google and Facebook and Yahoo records, drones, big data, and the internet creation of secret and revealed selves. And we will look to our wonderful panelists to help us open up these concepts of secrecy and transparency and their current relevance. So I'm going to introduce the panelists now. We are pleased to have here with us today Alex Abdo on the far left here. Alex is a staff attorney for the ACLU and for their national security project. He is the current counsel to the ACLU's challenge to the NSA's phone records program and has been involved in the litigation of cases concerning the Patri Patriot Act and the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, and the treatment of detainees at Guantanamo and elsewhere. Um, Alex is a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School, and prior to working at the ACLU, clerked for several different judges. Um, he recently participated in a panel at the University of Pennsylvania, which was called On the Very Idea of Secret Laws, Transparency and Publicity in Deliberative Democracy. So welcome, Alex. Um, next, we have Jack Bradich over here, who is Associate Professor and Chair of the Journalism and Media Studies Department at Rutgers University. His work applies autonomous social theory to popular culture and social movement media. He is the author of Conspiracy Panics, Political Rationality in Popular Culture in 2008. And his most recent publications include Adventures in the Public Secret Sphere, Police Sovereign Networks and Communications Warfare in Cultural Studies Critical Methodologies. Is that right? OK. Um, he's also a Zion librarian at the ABC No Rio and has co-taught co courses at Blue Stockings Bookstore in New York City. So welcome, Anna. Welcome. Um, our next panelist is Ted Jacobs. Ted is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the NYU School of Medicine. He's also a training and supervising analyst for adults and children, both here at NIPSI and at four other psychoanalytic institutes around the country, and the editor of um, at least four analytic journals. Dr. Jacobs has published over 60 papers and book reviews, and among them are Secrets, Alliances, and Family Fictions, Psychoanalytic Observations, and Notes on the Unknowable, Analytic Secrets, and The Transference Neurosis. He has two new books out for 2013, neither of which have much to do with secrets. One is The Year of Du Rocher, a novel about the turmoil created when the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to a different team, the New York Giants, in 1948, and The Possible Profession, The Analytic Process of Change. So 
Welcome. And finally, we have Michael Lewis. Michael is a university distinguished professor of pediatrics and psychiatry and director of the Institute for the Study of Child Development at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson School. His research has focused on normal and deviant emotional and intellectual development. Um, and among his books are Lies and Deception in Everyday Life, which he has brought for us here, and A Handbook of Emotional Development, which was awarded the Critics' Choice Award. Um, most recently, his latest book, which he also has with him, is The Rise of Consciousness and the Development of Emotional Life, which is out for 2014. And he's also working on a new book, My Life as Development. Okay. So these are our panelists. I hope that they will help us get access to the psychology and national psychology of secrecy and transparency. Okay. Um, I wanted to start out just with a quote from JFK. The word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we as a people are inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, secret oaths, and secret proceedings. Um, seems like JFK was not particularly up to date, but I would start out with a question related to that. What is our modern conception of secrecy, privacy, transparency, and openness, and is there something uniquely American about the way that we approach it? So i leave it to you guys to open that up. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, I, we were talking just before we came up, and um, many of you will remember that uh, uh, Eisenhower was going to meet with the Russian premier. It was uh, Brezhnev or it was Khrushchev, I don't remember. Must have been Khrushchev. And um, right before they were to meet, uh, a U-2 plane with powers flew over Russia taking pictures. And they shot the plane down, and so they had us. <coughs> Eisenhower was asked, uh, did you have knowledge of this? <coughs> he said yes. Uh, that terminated the first meeting since Yalta or Potsdam between uh, American president and Russian premier. <coughs> because in, in diplomacy, uh, it is recognized that indeed, if you tell the truth, um, uh, that's an insult. Had he said, uh, I didn't know about I have this, as you do, this large government, and all sorts of things happen, Khrushchev would have, uh, the meeting would have taken place. That he chose, Eisenhower, the all-American, American, chose, to tell the truth, which from a diplomatic point of view was not the thing to do to have that meeting take place. So um, I guess I'm gonna start off as sort of the other side of the view. I think that secrecy, deception, and lying have a very important place in human life. And I spend my time not as uh, uh, legal or helping folks with their problems, uh, uh, media issues. I study development. I study infants and their development. And one of the extraordinary things is how early children lie uh, by two years of age 
children have pretend play, which is a kind of self-deception. They lie to spare the feelings of others, and they lie not to uh, get punished for transgressions. Um, so, and we are not unique. This goes on. We studied in Japan. We studied in Europe. Uh, this is all children as best we could say. So extraordinary early in life, secrecy, deception, um, is part of the uh, human psyche. Uh, I'll stop. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you that there's a very important place for secrecy and deception in our, in our private lives. I, but I think, that, you know, in America, we've always had a double standard when it comes to secrecy. Uh, we expect to maintain our private spheres, but we expect that the government will not maintain a significant private sphere. Um, you know, we, we expect that the government will, to the extent possible, I think be open and transparent, although you're right that there's obviously even there a very important uh, role for secrecy to play. Diplomacy doesn't work uh, in the open generally. Uh, many national security policies can't function if entirely open. Uh, but we, there's always been a deep-seated hostility, I think, toward excessive secrecy in government. And the question that, you know, when we were discussing a moment ago, that we at the ACLU are concerned about is the question of when excessive government uh, uh, makes democratic self-governance difficult. And maybe another way of thinking about it, though, to just to take it on the terms that you started us out with, if secrecy is, uh, you know, so important for private development and private life, which I agree with you it is, you can think of surveillance, government surveillance, uh, as being what undoes private secrecy, what unmasks self-deception. Uh, it gets behind the veil that we construct for ourselves in you know, maintaining a private and dignified life. And so there's a question as to to what extent should we allow that surveillance, and obviously we have decided there should be some of it, uh, and to what extent should we allow secrecy about the extent of that surveillance, uh, which is another you know, interrelated question. Yeah, follow up on that too. Um, around democracy, and I really like the figure uh, of Eisenhower. So he could have said, as you said, he could have said, yes, we have secrets, but I didn't know about this one, right? It's, it's an acknowledgement, but he said, yes, we have secrets, and I know about them, right? So the, I mean, those are two different ways of revealing one's knowledge about, about secrecy, and I think that's the, uh, it's that tactical uh, approach to revelation that, that interests me as uh, part of U.S. history. So around, around democracy. So you think about the emergence of uh, the American Revolution. So much of it was also hatched in things like lodges and Freemasonic lodges and secret societies, right? So here's this fun fundamental uh, moment of the, uh, the foundation of democracy itself that's also partially hatched in some people saying, well, there's a certain kind of secrecy that we don't like, monarchical secrecy. Um, but we're gonna start plotting some things in secret because we have to do that because it's a revolution. And, uh, so there, there are moments that, uh, right, that it's, to me, the issue is who gets to decide when secrecy and transparency are uh, allowable, right? So that, to me, is the interest around sovereignty. Um, is, it, is there something, a difference between, say, a popular secrecy and something more like state secrecy? Can we think about something about secrets that belong to a population that's part of democracy um, and not just uh, antithetical to democracy? You know, in some sense, secrets, <clears throat> just like, um, 
I think who, who, I forget who it was who said that all politics is local. So it relates to the community and even if it's national politics, it's people tend to experience it in terms of their own, <clears throat> their own community, their own private lives. Secrets also are always, in some deep sense, always personal <clears throat> in the sense that they resonate with our own experience with the secrets and the deepest part of ourselves. As, as, <clears throat> as you've said, Dr. Lewis, that secrets are always a part of development and a necessary. Can you imagine if a child didn't have any secrets that <clears throat> the Parents knew everything about the child. There'd be no sense of separateness, no sense of development. <clears throat> and the larger question that Alex raises is when does this necessary aspect of secret become <clears throat> intolerable? And he says, well, a certain amount of state secrets are, are necessary for any government to exist. <clears throat> um, if, <clears throat> if the Germans knew where we were going to land and D-Day, we would have lost <clears throat> thousands of more troops, or maybe even the war. But at what point does the individual right to privacy conflict with the national interest in, let's say, discovering secret plots that may go on? <clears throat> if, if, the, if the government had been able to discover the secrets of the 9-11 bombers as they were preparing their plans, we would have been saved a great deal. So let me ask Alex, in your work that you've been doing, um, have you been able to define at all that borderline between the necessary and the intrusive and immoral aspects of secrets? <laughs> let me, yeah. Oh. <clears throat> I think I think there's some agreement between having them and how much is a good thing. So I think that's a lot of progress, uh, really, and just as an opening, uh, because we could have folks sitting here uh, as panelists who would say that secrets aren't good. Uh, so, for example, in, you know, there's a, a very famous philosopher, Bork, uh, uh, who talks about lying, as a set of secrets, as a first-order moral failure. Um, now, one could argue with that. What I think might concern us is what has changed for those of us who have lived long enough in terms of what is public and what is, was not public. So how, how, have we ex how many of us have not experienced walking down the street and having someone in full voice in a conversation on the phone with someone to which we could listen into uh, or go to the movies where people talk and uh, the idea of private versus public behavior. So I think there's been a real transformation uh, in this um, uh, uh, move toward public behavior, uh, that uh, private behavior. 
And I think it's part of this movement that is probably at least 50 to 70 years old in this society in which we are not supposed to have secrets, that good relationships don't involve privacy. Uh, um, uh, if you go to a dinner party and it wasn't uh, uh, a good dinner or pleasant company, and the, uh, uh, you can say something about it instead of what we used to do was write. Remember, we actually wrote things and we sent a thank you note for uh, inviting us to their home and so on. So I think there's an enormous change and I think there's a lot of pathology that goes on with both at the society at large, which will mean government, will be communicative, and, and individuals. I think that we're, we're, we're supposed to not have a secret. If you get a present that you don't like from your grandmother who's knitted you with arthritic fingers a sweater, uh, you're supposed to say you like it. But people chafe at that idea. You're not being honest with your grandmother. You should tell your grandmother the truth. Uh, so uh, I think there's a strange thing going on in our society in this domain of public-private, which of course is some sense what we're talking about. As you were saying, private, we have to have private. But this idea is, we're not supposed to. If my wife uh, comes home with a, you know, a jacket that I don't like, I'm supposed to tell her I don't like it. Uh, so all sorts of things are going on, and I think at multiple levels. And, and I think that we have to understand them in that context. I don't know historically whether in this country there was ever a period of time when the government didn't have secrets. I, I mean, it's inconceivable to me that you could have a government in the same way that Ted was saying, you could have a person, a child, who didn't have secrets. Any functioning organization has to have secret handshake, uh, uh, secret uh, 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 code. Uh, secret language, in fact. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I disagree with your kind of description of how society has changed over the last 50 or 60 years. I'm not sure I, I know enough to agree or disagree. But you know, one of the questions that concerns us so much is to what extent the government gets to capitalize on those changes. So if you look back at you know, the, the late 1700s, one of the reasons that the uh, early Americans rebelled was actually about secrecy. Uh, one of the last straws was the fact that King George insisted on using similar authority that was being used in England, uh, what were known as general warrants, in the colonies as well. Uh, and these were issued by courts and they gave constables the authority to enter homes at will to search for tax evaders uh, and people who were you know, evading uh, import taxes. Uh, and that was one, that was the, the foundation of the Fourth Amendment. That was where our right to privacy came from, was a notion that unregulated government access to our secret lives uh, is wrong. But then for the next 200 years, the primary protector of secrecy was not actually 
legal. Uh, the primary protector of secrecy in the country was practical. The government couldn't record all of the information that was being spread around in public and maintain it in databases. Um, and I think the real kind of governmental shift over the last 15 years is that, not, you know, and this is actually a really kind of fundamental shift in the way intelligence gathering takes place, is that it is now possible for the government to keep a record of all of these conversations uh, that are spoken in public. Uh, or to keep track of all of the digital trails we leave whenever we interact with uh, an internet service. Because those things are, in a sense, made public. We share them with Google, we share them with Yahoo. But now the government can keep track of them, can keep them forever. Uh, and that search first, uh, you know, search first, suspicion later approach to surveillance is really a, you know, a, a revolution in the way our agencies conduct intelligence gathering. And so the, you know, the question is, is that okay? Um, and, uh, and if it's not, why isn't it? If you're right that this is information that we're just volunteering anyway, why do we care if the government keeps a repository? And, you know, and one answer is that uh, you know, when you, and this is a, a phrase I heard recently, when you calcify the present, um, you, know, you, you might say to yourself, suppose you had the world's best detective and he were always able to reconstruct the past would that be a bad thing? Would you, you know, maybe that's a great thing. Maybe you want a police officer who's always able to reconstruct the investigative path. Um, and a log you know, one logical leap from that is, well, why not preserve the path now so you don't have to rely on this superhuman investigator? Uh, and then you can just give the government access to these databases of information. And an answer to that question, I think, is that when you calcify the present in that way, when you, uh, when you get rid of the practical protection for secrecy we had for 200 years, you also encumber the present. Every current decision is encumbered by the possibility of future liability. Not necessarily legal liability, um, but the, the, the possibility that in 20 years something you said will be uncovered in a way that never existed. That there was in essence a right to, for, to be forgotten uh, for most of our country's history. And that, that is being practically threatened. Um, you know, we now live uh, in a world where virtually everything we do is digitally tracked in some way or other. And we have to wrestle with the question of whether we, whether we want to preserve this practical ability to have those actions forgotten or not. Well, I don't really want to talk about the government, but the, you don't object to governments having secrets. You object to them knowing about our secrets, that is, knowing about our private life. Is that the argument? Are governments allowed to have secrets? Because I don't see how they could function. You know, I, I think they have a question they can have secrets. The question is what level of secrecy is allowable in a, in a democracy? Or, and how about recoverable? Recoverable? Well, in the sense that you know what they know about you, Freedom of Information Act, and so on. There was an attempt there, the government makes records, takes, gets information about people, and you have a right to know what they know. Right. Okay. I, I is that a safe gone? I think it is, but it's, it's kind of telling in our country that that's a statutory right and not a constitutional one. You would think in a democracy that the Constitution would protect access to information about government, but in fact, you know, the Supreme Court has held it doesn't. Right. You know, there's not actually a constitutional right to that information. And the statutory right, and as someone who litigates a lot under the Freedom of Information Act, well, I can tell you is a weak one. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, so the question, 
if you went back to the 70s, which is when the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, and this is the main law that the government has used for national security intelligence gathering for the last quarter century, uh, 35 years, uh, you could have made an argument that in 1978, that statute itself should have been secret, that our uh, prospects in the Cold War would have been better had uh, the KGB not been able to read the law that governed the intelligence activities of the NSA. Um, but we rejected that. We didn't. Because you know, there was a recognition that certain things should be public. Um, and so I agree, you know, the governments need secrets. Uh, the, the very difficult question is when the secret becomes illegitimate. Uh, and you know, to take the modern day example, you have Edward Snowden who leaked the existence of a program in which every phone record, every single day is being captured by the NSA. Uh, you know, the phone call that you were talking about made on the streets of New York City by tomorrow morning will be in an NSA database. Um, is, that a, is that a secret that a government should be allowed to keep? Uh, and I think that's a, that's a difficult question uh, in a democracy. You know, we, we have a strong view of what the answer is, but not everyone agrees with us, um, and it's a difficult question. <clears throat> At the same time that there's been a, a kind of um, maybe defanging of FOIA, has there also been an increase, my understanding is an increase in classification of certain kinds of domains of government activity? So at the same moment that uh, public is disempowered, increasingly disempowered from accessing things, more and more things are becoming inaccessible. I mean, is that a kind of characterization of the, of the recent? Every government official to have left government in the past 30 years has complained about overclassification, but even more of late. And they're now, I think, I forget what the exact number is, but millions of people who have security clearances to access this trove of information that is growing exponentially. Uh, particularly in the digital age, things are now born classified, they say, because they're derivative of other digital documents. You email something around internally on a, on a classified network, and all of a sudden you have a whole new classified chain uh, you know, of information. So yeah, yeah, you're right. And so to me, I mean, some of the changes I think that are happening in the political environment include precisely what you've been talking about, an expansion of a, of a national security state, specifically in the last <clears throat> dozen years or so, around terror war, right? And a kind of war context and a war environment that makes every question about uh, freedom, uh, democracy, suddenly tied to security. And the security suddenly becomes the, um, the most important kind of value through which all these others have to be run through. So that kind of discursive environment is something I think that's changed uh, over the last 15 years. The other thing that I think has changed a bit, uh, um, and which is my interest, is on how, how that do get revealed uh, take place in a public sphere and it almost doesn't matter, right? So, uh, so one of the things I look at is sort of the early Bush years and some of the things that did get revealed um, and all the books that came out around, you know, Bush is a liar, Bush is this and that, and then it made no difference for the uh, election, right, in 2004. Because it's almost like there's a belief somehow, an American belief, that if you expose secrets, that leads to action. Um, and I think that is the connection that I'm interested in. How do we move from information to action? And does exposure and revelation actually lead to action? Or is there something else going on that might prevent that from happening. So that's, that's sort of my interest. And my favorite figure during that time period is one of the masters of revealing secrets, and that was Donald Rumsfeld, right? Who is this, um, I mean, you just listen to these press conferences, and he's, uh, he's almost a wizard at this, where he says things like, <clears throat> remember that, that list of uh, the known and the unknown that he brought up? But there are these known knowns, then, then there are the known unknowns about Iraq, where these are the justifications, then the unknown unknowns, right? What he forgot, though, 
He only mentioned three, right? and then that two-by-two two monohybrid, there's a fourth, right? which is the, uh, the unknown knowns. Is that right? Yeah, right. So, so he didn't mention that one. I'm like, okay, why, what, what is that one about? And so that, for me, is the interesting moment of, of things that we know are happening, uh, but we forget, right? or we deny, or we repress. Um, so things like Abu Ghraib, I mean, it was a revelation of particular activities that were being done, but atrocities during warfare are something that we almost have to forget in order to engage in it um, as a society. So, so these moments of things that get revealed uh, at the same time as other things get concealed at the very same moment, um, I was sort of tracking that as a cultural media phenomenon, uh, and I think a lot of that has changed too. So we get revelations. I like, before the panel started, the roundtable panel, um, on the screen, we had uh, my friend Trevor Paglin was up there, the artist who uh, studies uh, government secrets and tries to map them and visualize them. Uh, he's, he's collected the patches of uh, you know, units in the military and such that are secret units, right? And he finds their patches and he's collected them. Um, he did some work on Area 51 before it was acknowledged that it existed, right? Which just happened in the last year or two, right? Before that, Area 51 never existed. So he went and tried to give tours of it. Great artist. Um, performance artists around this. Anyway, so, uh, so that kind of question too, of like what, you know, uh, even if things get revealed, what happens? What happens now that Area 51 is revealed? Or, you know, more documents about the Kennedy assassinations start coming out, right? I mean, what is the action component that to me is the crucial part of democracy? Not just the things that we know about the government, but the things that we can do about it. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's so frightening about the NSA leaks is that people have this feeling now that they're releasing this massive amount of information in anonymity and that some date in the future it's going to come back and bite them, but it's very hard for them to conceptually keep it in mind as to when would that be. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let's take, let's take this back down to uh, uh, interpersonal, to, to sort of get it back. And uh, I think Ted and I represent more that perspective. So it is now possible for a parent to go on the computer of their child and find out things about their child. So let's talk about parents and kids and the technology that allows parents to find out things about their kids and what we might feel about that. Because you couldn't do that before. Now, since you wouldn't open mail and so on, but it is now possible with computers in the home to do that. There, I think you would, there would be more argument about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing or how to regulate that and so on. I, I don't have a, an answer to that. I'm, I'm just sort of trying to bring the, your point about new technology. Uh, changing the complexity of the problem we have to making it now interpersonally. Well, I mean, we could even do it not therapeutically, but now with brain imaging and all this kind of work that is leading to find out what is going on in someone's head without asking them or without interacting with them. So what we have is a technology uh, that is allowing all sorts of challenges to this idea of privacy or secrecy, whether it be at the level of the individual to the government or the level of the person to themselves, to the therapist, to parents, and so on. That technology is changing that. 
Well, the the <clears throat> people have responded so much to this idea of the government listening in on phone calls, getting listening, uh, being able to obtain private messages that people send to one another. It's a sense of violation that goes back to early childhood. I mean, the child is entitled to have some privacy. The parent who is <clears throat> looking at the diary, looking at the computer, is violating something very essential in the child's development. But it's an interesting question, Alex. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that there are some people in this country sent by some foreign power, <clears throat> and they're planning another another attack of a major kind, 9-11. And I think most people would say, if we can identify those individuals or have some suspicion, we're entitled to tap their phones, get whatever information we can to avoid this, this massive disaster. But what if the government says, well, but we can't actually do this without listening to everybody because maybe they have some contacts here with private citizens or US citizens that we won't know about unless we listen to everybody. Is that justified on the basis of a clear and present danger? Or should we say, no, you can't do that regardless, even if there's a danger, because that's, that's just too invasive of an individual's rights? You know, I, I, <clears throat> I would dispute the factual premise of the question, yeah. which is that you actually would ever need to listen to everyone's communications in order to conduct a targeted mm -hmm. investigation. Uh, but even if it were the case, you know, you, you could prevent an extraordinary amount of crime in this country if you gave police officers authority to open up houses without uh, warrants, uh, to install video cameras in houses, and then only access them later on if a need arose, um, you know, maybe through judicial authorization, maybe through an automated scan of what's going on in the house, so it's just a computer looking, it's not a human. Um, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who kind of observe very provocatively that the optimal level of crime in a society is not zero because the only way you can achieve zero crime in a society is to become a surveillance state, uh, and that we've rejected that path. And that's a weird cost-benefit way of looking at it, uh, that we tolerate a certain amount of civil disobedience or crime in order to not to sacrifice every bit of freedom that we have. Um, and that question becomes a lot more difficult when you ratchet up yeah. the one side, uh, when you make it about uh, you know, a terrorist attack in the country, uh, but you know, but I spent a lot of time listening to uh, people who conduct these investigations, and I've looked at all of the examples that the government has made public in any event about how these programs are used. Um, and it, there's not really a convincing case that pervasive surveillance is necessary in a strong sense. It's of course useful. It makes the job easier sometimes. It's always easier if you don't have to go to a, a judge to get a warrant. Why trouble the police officers? You know, but that inefficiency is, has a purpose. Um, uh, and it's to protect the private sphere from uh, you know, unjustified invasion. And to, you know, to get back to the question of um, when do we accept that invasion? And, you know, and the, the balance that was originally drawn in, in the 1700s 
it, you know, with the ratification of the Fourth Amendment was with cause. And the question always is, what, what's sufficient cause? And we can have that debate. Um, but with cause means something. It means that you don't accept pervasive surveillance at the outset. You don't uh, accept dragnet surveillance. Um, you know, that's what the, the founding was, a rejection of, uh, you know, of King George's dragnet surveillance. Um, you know, I, I used to do a lot of, most of my early work at the ACLU was relating to uh, mistreatment of detainees. And so we, all, we heard the same argument there, which was, uh, well, maybe torture does work. Maybe in that one situation, the ticking time bomb scenario, uh, you'd want to use torture. Uh, and, you know, the, the kind of uh, civil society uh, groups that work on these issues are divided over whether to engage in that hypothetical. Uh, because uh, torture is, is immoral no matter what is the argument. I mean, we shouldn't engage on this practical question. Um, but they always, you know, at the end of the day, you want to convince people that uh, it doesn't actually work. Um, and even if it did, this ticking time bomb scenario is, is, is actually just a hypothetical. It doesn't actually exist. Those situations never really do exist. Um, so I don't think we'll find ourselves in a situation where the, the but-for limit um, on cracking a terrorist attack is collecting every American's communication. Um, uh, but if we did, I, I think our, our principles uh, would reject pervasive surveillance to accomplish that result. Why do you think pervasive surveillance is going on now since there doesn't seem to be a clear and present danger, but it's still going on? You know, there's been a shift in the way the NSA conceives of its role. It really has switched from an agency that used to be uh, targeted in its investigations to one that tries to collect everything at the outset to preserve for later searching. And that, that technological shift has just happened to have, you know, occurred over the last 20 years. The war of terrorism, they've redefined so that there's always a threat. And given there's always a threat, you always can be in this mode of trying to prevent it which then allows um, right. allows them to do this. There was another, and, and we were talking about it briefly earlier, which is the role of people in the society to uncover what, in fact, the secrets or what the government is doing and there, we were talking about investigative reporting. Well, that has all but disappeared, given the state that the print media is in now. Um, now, hopefully, the new technology, the internet, blogging, will pick up this. But um, uh, uh, we get in our home times every day, and it says the, all the news that's fit to print. Well, that's, that's silly. Uh, it's, uh, clearly, we know that they selectively don't tell things as, uh, uh, as they've admitted. But investigative reporting has, for the most part, disappeared. And now what we have are individuals who take it upon themselves to reveal some of these secrets that are going on. And of course, they're labeled as traitors and they have to flee the country and, and, and so on. But I have a concern that, that given that there has to be a certain tension between the public and private always, that one of the regulators of that, 
uh, 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 is or investigative reporting. Uh, and there is much, I think, much less of that. It's not much less of it in sense it isn't happening, but you know, I read Mother Jones. Well, Mother Jones, I don't know if it has 50,000 subscribers or The Nation, uh, where things break much earlier than, or I have Stone in another generation, where in fact there were people who took up, or reporters, the media, who took it upon themselves to in fact uh, report and to try to regulate this private, public, kind of activity. And, and I'm really placing, and I understand uh, the position of, of, of preventing the government, but I see it as a broader issue between a public and a private. What is private and what is public? And I think we're in trouble with this. Uh, there is much too much private behavior that's public now. Uh, uh, for, for some of us, uh, we're uncomfortable with it. We don't really want to hear the conversation, the regulation of conversation in restaurants. For those of us who are New Yorkers, come on, I mean, it's, you know, we can't go in. The noise level is so high, and it's because people don't modulate their voices any longer. And so, but investigative reporting, what, what's happened to that? Uh, you know better than I uh, how many people get their news from the, uh, you know, from television. Uh, how many get it from the newspaper or from the, uh, the internet. Uh, in fact, we know how little people know about what's going on in the world, uh, our citizens. I've forgotten the figures, but 5% couldn't name who the vice president is, and probably 90 couldn't name who was the last vice president. So, is something happening in this balance now um, that, that needs writing? Uh, interesting legal ACLU, uh, uh, such organizations attempt to to try to maintain this balance. But it's a lonely place to be. You would be much more helped, right? I mean, if there were a lot of people out there uh, who could, as part of their job, reveal these things and you know, confront some of these issues. I mean, this last uh, event uh, with uh, I don't remember his name at the moment, but you know, had to reveal what NS, uh, the NSA was doing, and, and then he had to uh, certainly leave the country. So that's kind of investigative reporting, but then you get classified as a traitor. So, so I don't know. I don't know even know how. I mean, from a legal point of view, obviously it has to be fought to regulate it. Uh, no one could argue with that, but I think if we take a broader perspective of, and maybe it is, what happens when technology changes, and indeed it's only going to get more amazing uh, uh, with this balance between public and private. Uh, it clearly is, 
we're in the midst of change, which in a single lifetime we can witness. Uh, sometimes it's quite scary. The, the right to privacy has been based on the idea of habeas corpus, typically, right? If you, I'm sorry. The, the right to privacy has been based on the idea of habeas corpus, typically, right? And there's been these metaphors of the body or the home or like concrete things that are inviolate that you have ownership over. And I was curious, what are the rights to information that we have now and how what is considered to be owned by the person right? in terms of language or data or things like that? What are the legal principles behind ownership in that way. One of the people that I talked to for this panel is starting a company where you would actually own your data and could monetize bits of information that are used about you because that is something that belongs to you. You know, Wittgenstein start that once you put something in language, it no longer belongs to you. So, you know, how is that sort of tension being played out between people? As a legal matter, I think it's, it's difficult to answer this question of what, what preserves our, uh, our ownership of information, but as a practical matter, it's a lot easier to describe it, which is that you know, if you think of your relationships with various internet companies, uh, if you're not paying for the service, chances are that you're not the customer. Uh, you know, that's, that's the adage that's been cropping up these days, that if you're not paying for it, you're actually the product. Um, and that's true for a lot of the companies that monetize the information. Uh, if you're a Gmail user, you're, you're only a customer in a very attenuated sense. Uh, because what funds your uh, use of that service is actually the information that you volunteer to Google that they then scrape to uh, create their ad-based business model. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think this is part of what uh, Dr. Lewis is getting at, which is that people more and more these days are volunteering this information. Uh, but I, you know, there's, there's a way in which we've always done that. It's just uh, now we have an internet to facilitate the exchange of the information and so by necessity so much of it resides with someone else. Um, you know, we used to keep journals, now we just keep them in the cloud. Uh, and what, what does that say about who owns that information? Should technology change uh, what we think of the ownership of that information? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, right, right now the government takes the position throughout much of the country that it doesn't need a warrant to open email. Uh, that it needs a warrant to open mail, uh, but all of a sudden when we move to the digital analog, uh, they don't. Um, and and that's, a, that's a bizarre, you know, conception of privacy. Just to follow up with that too, about the kind of corporate surveillance and data gathering that happens when people um, do this. So, so one way is, to, yeah, it, we used to write journals, now we put them in the cloud and we make it, in a Wittgensteinian sense, open and public, right? And it's no longer ours. But what's happening with corporate surveillance is um, we give it over to another private entity, right? It's who then captures and reorganizes the data. And we do that when we sign those, we check mark those boxes, right? The terms of service agreements or the end user licensing agreements, the things that people tend to just like check, yeah, I've got to get to my mail or I've got to get to this, uh, I want to start this platform. Um, uh, but that's when this sort of, it's almost like the last bastion of this true, like older form of sovereignty where you give up your rights to your data because you've, you've told them, you know, um, whatever you want to take from here, you, you can. And then the, the, some of the battles that are happening both legally but also culturally around um, how platforms like Facebook have to then respond to its users that say, well, you might want to alter those terms of service agreements before, um, you know, unless you want to alienate a lot of people. So there is a, a cultural dimension, I think, there too, as well as legal. Information has become a, a sellable item. So, you know, on your, uh, if you write a check, 
Uh, I mean, there are so many uh, uh, public things we do that get us into the private domain. I mean, Social Security uh, uh, secret is probably the, uh, the, the, the most secret thing we have. I mean, if you have a package sent to you, they have your address, they have your zip code, and commercial, or thinking of commercial. I mean, there's enormous, you go on and buy something online. So people are harvesting um, bits of information which are now extraordinarily valuable, supposedly. Now there's something interesting about it, which is that the algorithms to analyze these bits are, are very primitive. And what really scares me is when they develop really good algorithms. And that's, of course, where a lot of our tax dollars are going, as they try to figure out how to take in every phone message, every uh, internet message, and try to get information that's useful for whatever their purpose might be. Uh, it's, it's not easy. There's an awful lot of information out there. And one of the things that may save us in some sense, is that there's so much of it that's going to take a long time. Uh, they can't analyze sentences and phrases, and they can't really analyze emotional tone. Uh, they can analyze words. So if you say president and you say uh, murder, uh, uh, the simple algorithm can put that together in a sentence and bring it up to some other level. So. But it would be nice to go back to the beginning when privacy was greater. But I think we're losing that. And while it would be nice to go back to the end of the 18th century, I don't think we can anymore. I think we have to confront that bits, these bits, which make a part of our lives are just available. They're in the clouds. And there's, there's no way around that, except if we go back to writing letters and they can't open the letters. Of course, they can probably, but you know, they don't tell us. So it just seems to me, you know, here's another etiquette. There used to be rules of behavior. You could keep your private but you can act appropriately. Well, there's, you know, the 60s, well, let it all hang out. What did that mean? It simply mean that you didn't have to have a private. If you didn't like something, you could say it. Instead of saying, which would, you could call a lie or a deception, thank you very much for the gift, when, in fact, you didn't like the gift at all. So I think lots of things are happening. Emotional expression, uh, pride. If you look at any sports, and by the way, it's all over the world. When people used to succeed in a sport, then baseball, they tip their hat if they hit a home run with the bases loaded. Now you see the full display of the pride response, as if it's perfectly okay to express yourself. So. This public-private thing is shifting, and where private is less, 
uh, less valued. And now you said that. I, I, I said it more from my perspective than yours. But it's true. It's, it's less valued now. So what we're confronted with was, in fact, governments which tell us we're always a threat. There's always an enemy there. The war on terrorism is endless. We don't declare war anymore. We haven't had, who was the last president? Roosevelt, I suspect, who went before Congress and asked for a declaration of war, which is a requirement. So, I mean, not only are, we, are our secrets being, our private being invaded, but the, the, uh, certainly the rule that the president needed a congressional act to uh, declare war has, has disappeared too. So uh, I don't think the, I don't, the solution, I mean, I hope you find the solution, because, but I don't think it's going to be going back to the end of the 18th century. I don't, I, I, we just live in a totally different world. I, mean, I, think, I think that's right as a practical matter. We're not going to go back to the, you know, the modes of communication of the you know, H tree, but I think the principles are, are, are worth thinking about anyway. Um, you know, but there's always been this tension between you know, private and public and what you share. And if you want to live a meaningfully social life, you construct your private sphere and then you choose what to share with people. Every time you have a conversation, you're sharing of your private life. Um, and, and that's what it means to engage, right? And, you know, I, I don't know that people now value their privacy less. It just might mean that they share their private information in a different way as part of their social engagements. Um, you know, but there, there's a, a way in which you can think about this uh, from the governmental perspective, which is that private people share information, uh, you know, to engage meaningfully, but governments share information often with the public anyway to maintain credibility. Uh, and there's a, you know, there's a, a certain amount of sharing you have to do as a government in order to maintain legitimacy. Otherwise, you're viewed as a repressive government. You're viewed as one that, um, you, you know, isn't uh, democratic, isn't governed by the people. Uh, but that, you know, that require, you know, that credibility is only at stake when there is kind of an adversity between the government and some other strong actor. It used to be, as you were saying, uh, investigative journalists who would. Uh, hold the government's feet to the fire when they didn't share enough. Um, now, you know, large media organizations don't fulfill that role as well, perhaps, as they used to. They're now, you know, there's a flatter business model when it comes to, to media. Uh, but that essence of adversity needs to be there. There needs to be someone who has an adverse interest to the government to force the government to maintain its credibility by sharing information. Um, can, I mean, I, can an individual decide that? We've had two examples. Yeah. One of the WikiLeaks and this yeah. last recent one where someone exposed the yes, no, NSA. Yeah. So can an individual decide, this is immoral, I'm going to expose this? Yeah. It's a very interesting question because one may feel that they've done a, a service and yet do they have the right to do that? Yeah. Suppose they decided that some democratic principle was, was entirely wrong and should be exposed. I mean, yeah. you know, there is a whole interesting argument to be made about all of this. Right? Yeah, it's a hard question about who should be making the decision when it comes to government secrecy. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult to tell the director of the NSA that one of his employees should be the one making the decision about uh, what should be public and what shouldn't be. I think an equally 
uh, intolerable answer is that the executive alone should decide what should be secret and what shouldn't be. Um, and the practical answer is, you know, our, our constitution is one that sets up a system of checks and balances. It, it pits. So there were two secrets, wasn't there? Yeah. One, that they were doing it. And two, they're doing it to us. Uh, and, and that's kind of interesting because in a certain sense, he exposed they were doing it, uh, and which then allows us to be prepared to act in a certain way to protect our privacy. So maybe what we need is not that they do it, but that we know that they do it. Because you would be pretty stupid if you were plotting to overthrow the government to do it in an email, you know, to a list of your colleagues who were going to blow up something. I mean, they know that, okay, the Germans didn't know we, I mean, yeah, the Germans didn't know we broke, we broke their code. Um, so the secret was not only getting their secrets, where they were going to bomb and where they were going to be, but it was the secret that we could find out their secrets. So maybe what we need to do is something around finding out what the secrets are. Aren't we protected in a certain sense now? There's also a notion of the legitimacy of the relationship, right? I mean, that, that any situation where you give somebody authority over you, you're saying, I, I know something about this person. They've represented themselves fairly, and there's a legitimacy to the authority that I'm giving you. And I think when people feel that that legitimacy has been undermined, that they've been tricked or in some way, that that's when they start to react against, against it and feel that they have the right then to reveal or leak or something like that. Well, if you wanted to tell someone that you didn't want the government to know, you wouldn't send an email. You wouldn't go on the phone. You'd probably meet them in some public place to exchange. So we have some protection by knowing, surprisingly, by knowing that they can, they can invade us. And so in a certain sense, I think the revelation of that, rather than anything particular secret, but that secret is what so infuriates the government because now it prevents them from doing the one thing they hoped to do, or at least they say they hope to do, is to catch these bad folks doing the thing. Now, if you're a smart bad folk, you're not going to do it in a way that the government would find out. I'm not sure the revelations changed that, though, for you know, if... Uh I think we all knew the government had the technological capability to do what's been revealed. Um, and if you were a terrorist, you would certainly expect that there would be no barrier to the government using that capability against you. Any system that requires cause, you know, a suspected terrorist will pass that threshold. <laughs> they will be targetable under any system. The, the biggest surprise, I think, from our perspective anyway, was that it was so untargeted. Um, and so the, the only people I think who have been who have learned information that they didn't already assume uh, was happening, you know, who, who learned that a form of surveillance was happening that they didn't already assume was happening, were the ordinary public, um, you know, innocent Americans who are, uh, who are not plotting terrorist attacks and so don't think daily about how to disguise uh, their communications. Um, and and that's, that's our concern, uh, you know, that uh, it, it's difficult to quantify the cost of an invasion of privacy. 
you know, you, you might say that uh, foregoing a particular international call with a controversial colleague or foregoing visiting a particular website is not much of a harm in isolation. But in the aggregate, I think it is. I mean, I, I think it is in isolation, but in the aggregate, it certainly is. That those hesitations add up. Um, you, you know, in a, in a, in a sense, it allows the government to break down our ability to construct the private life that, you're, that you started out this conversation by describing. Um, it, you know, it, it takes away from the private citizen agency the ability to, con to manage his uh, private affairs. You've written about this as a battleground, right? You want to say it? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, there are lots of battles <laughs> in battleground. I'm trying to think what, what to pluck out of it. One thing is about, yeah, going back to the 1700s, we shouldn't go back there. Yes, um, again, technically speaking, but in terms of technology, but yeah, the principles of democracy um, uh, and a nation's foundation were forged there. So it's important, I think, to go back for that reason. Otherwise, we go back to the 60s in which it was said of in, during the Vietnam War, we had to destroy it in order to save it, right? And I think if that logic starts appearing as um, part of what we exist in now, then we have brought that kind of war to the homeland, right? And so that, that concerns me um, uh, in terms of the, the freedom and the spaces of dissent. Uh, so if everyone, if, the, if there's a blanket, uh, notion that citizens are potentially connected. Now, they're not a potentially terrorist. They're just potentially connected to someone who might be connected to a terrorist. Um, then uh, dissenters who've already been determined to be terrorists in different kinds of discourses, the FBI considers you know, lots of different kinds of protests to be actually forms of terrorism, domestic terrorism, um, then we may have already gutted uh, the foundation under which people can have uh, a democratic life as well as a rich interior personal life. And so that's the battleground that concerns me is also where dissent can take place, um, both through surveillance, the counter surveillance, I was thinking about cop watch, right? So instead of these sort of also grand figures like Snowden who do these international things, how about very local, all politics is local, you know, uh, very local things like cop watch that are tracking, you know, police abuse on the streets and then the ways those people who are, you know, documenting that you know, who might be a kind of investigative journalist, are being preemptively arrested, their equipment confiscated, um, all the sort of NYPD techniques against uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, attempts to visualize what was going on by the police, during, especially during the clearing out of Zuccotti. I mean, these are ways that there's a prevention, a preemptive actually intervention into the forms of transparency that can happen from bottom up from the people on the streets. So that to me concerns me. That's why I think it's a battleground. And so to think about it more in terms of warfare, um, in which case law is very important to, uh, you know, to find curbs and to be part of that. But when I think of at least the stories I've heard about the NYPD having built into their budgets the fact that these, they're going to predict these lawsuits uh, because of their extra legal detention, preemptive detention of um, protesters on the streets of New York, right? So they figure that they're going to do this, it's gonna be illegal, they're gonna lose in court, and they're gonna to have to pay out a civil case, right? So that's already built into the way that the strategy works to manage dissent. And that to me is um, where, when you think about who gets to be, who, who gets to uh, produce a kind of transparency upon whom and under what conditions, so.
Who would be interesting to, if there was someone uh, among us who was a high-tech person, who could tell us what we would have to do to counter. Now, they, Google and some of the others are saying that, in fact, they're going to build devices that will prevent them from doing it. Um, now, I mean, clearly one way is to try to prevent them by arguing from principles of law and justice and so on. Another way, of course, is as in evolution, you know, uh, something evolves and then uh, those that survive have to evolve new things to uh, do those old things. And so that there is this kind of balance, there's this kind of always tension that, that exists in life. So I can't imagine, I mean, I cannot imagine, but I cannot not imagine that there are high-tech folks who are figuring out ways that you might be able to scramble phone messages in some way or uh, internet and so on. And maybe what we need um, uh, to, uh, uh, to equalize some of this injustice, because it's happening to us, but we don't have much leeway except through the law to try to counter it, maybe we need to develop, you know, a new technology that I attach it to my phone for any phone call that I don't want anyone to be able to decipher. I can tell you a little bit about that. Oh, you know, you know it, it turns out it's relatively simple to disguise the content of your internet communications, your emails. Most people, uh, most people won't take the extra steps necessary and Gmail has no incentive to facilitate it because their business model is based upon access to your email. Um, but there are ways to encrypt those communications. What's much more difficult is to disguise your metadata. Uh, and it turns out, uh, and the reason is because you generally need to expose your metadata so that your communication service knows where to send your information. If you're sending an email, the, the two line needs to be exposed so that the next computer knows where to send it. There ha you know, there's a lot of research that's gone into how to disguise that originally funded by the Navy because uh, the government wanted a way of securing its internal communications. And so they invested heavily in uh, what's a system of what's called onion routing, where you would sequentially encrypt your communications through a series of hops with the idea that no one hop knows the full path and it's very difficult to reconstruct. Um, but these are you know, difficult technologies to use for most people. Um, and I think they're part of the solution, but they're not the full solution. But if we have to do something like that, what kind of society are we living in? And what, what is the implication of having to protect ourselves? And what's the implication of the government having the power to find out information about a private individual without regard to the, you might say, the basic rights of that person for privacy. I mean, where, what's the implication? Have we undermined really the whole sense of democracy and the sense of, of, of trusting government? It seems like the whole world is beginning to shift in terms of what is really, what are our values? What are we dealing with here? You know? Well, you know, some of it's not new. You know. We, we use envelopes when we send mail, generally. Most people don't send truly private 
pieces of mail uh, on uh, postcards. You know, they don't write something very sensitive on a postcard. They put it in an envelope. And uh, it turns out that just the way the phone systems developed, they're all like postcards. Uh, when you are talking over the phone, there is nothing to prevent anyone who has access to the line anywhere along it from listening to the conversation. There's no protection. It's a postcard. Um, and we have kind of a system of blind trust for the intermediaries, but it's a trust that we're now learning is unjustified. The same has largely been true of email. Email, for most of its history, has been communicated entirely unencrypted. Um, if you send, you know, to give you an example, if you send a Gmail from a Gmail account to another Gmail account, that's generally encrypted internally to Gmail. But if you send a Gmail uh, email to someone on Yahoo's account, the connection between Gmail and Yahoo is not encrypted. So anyone, and not just our government, and not just a government, but even a relatively unsophisticated hacker, uh, could intercept that communication. So some of it, I think, is just common sense. It's putting the envelope on your communication. Um, but I agree that we shouldn't have to. It's, sad. it's a sad commentary that uh, people in the tech community are now thinking of their products from the no-trust model. Mm. Right? They're assuming that nothing can be trusted. The server can't be trusted because the NSA has access to it. The telecoms can't be trusted because they'll roll over and give up the information. So let's design a system that uh, is secure even if you can't trust the servers, which is possible. Um, you know, but it's a sad commentary. But following up, why would somebody want to have, and you can hear it, a private conversation on their phone in a public place. Um, uh, I'm sure we all have experienced people having fights on the phone and, and, or other kinds of things which are really private. Now, we couldn't have done that before. At best, we could have been in a booth in the, on the street, but uh, usually you were in your office or home where you did those. So we now have a device um, which promotes it um, and it pr I believe promotes the idea that there isn't private. That is, I, I don't only see it as the government. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, and, and I guess I'm trying to think it through with, with something not just the government and us, but something is happening. Uh, commercial, you were mentioning. I mean, there are some incredible things on online dating. Now, um, you can fill out a form to begin with, and you say you really want, you're interested in dating brunettes. And so the pictures and the information they send you are brunettes, but they're not all brunettes. Now, the uh, devices now can monitor if you start hitting uh, not on brunettes but on blondes, let's say, or, 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 or black-haired uh, uh, people. And they will now switch. They will take your action rather than what you stated. So we now have the and we know that in terms of buying things, uh, um, uh, some these devices, these algorithms can come up and, and present you with things that you've done before. That, so even commercially, they're, they're keeping track of your behavior. So 
it's endemic, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, we've always had to protect ourselves from the, our government and our, our, our constitution. Our, our initial struggle was to try to figure out how to do that for, for this country. But it's not only, uh, uh, it's ourselves allowing ourselves uh, less privacy and it is our commerce in our commercial worlds and our everyday lives in which um, people are keeping track of what we do, what we're buying, and, and so on. So um, I guess, I mean, you know, you read some of Scalia, you know, he would like us back to, uh, you can't go into your house. Well, if that's what it says, uh, you know, fundamental interpretation. It says you can't need a warrant to come into your home. Well, talking on a phone is not your home. So they could argue, we're not going to take technology into account. And of course, the more progressive arguments are that indeed, it's the idea of privacy uh, and protection. But it just seems to me that we need a kind of, of a balance, a kind of protection. One, in terms of understanding why we are giving up privacy. And two, mechanisms by which those of us who want could reestablish it, learning how to encode or getting the, the tech folks to give us really very simple algorithms to make our job of uh, encoding, encrypting easier to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butt in here in the interest of time. So I'm going to sum up and say that we're very trusting and we want to be close to people and be known. And we're very curious and therefore very prying. And we'll have to grapple with that in the area of secrecy. We're now open for questions for the next 20 minutes. Please come to the microphone if you'd like to ask. Comment and then a question. Uh, some comments that you've made about using the word cloud. The cloud isn't really a cloud. It's a horrible name for the way things are going. I mean, it's distributed equipment that people share. It's on the ground. Uh, you can't just pull it out of the air. And fundamentally, it's owned by companies. So, for instance, Amazon is a cloud. They own. VMware is a cloud, and uh, probably lots of other people are clouds. In other words, they have equipment on the ground, etc., servers, all that. Memory and, okay, my question. You didn't really discuss, and I'm interested in this because it's got to do with human nature, I think, the mechanism by which the NSA obtains the data. For instance, I suspect they don't really hack, like you were saying. I don't think they hack the lines and servers and stuff. I think it works like this. I'm guessing. They get a court order, and you could help me here. They get a court order that says, okay, you can go to Google or AOL and present it to the president and say, we want your permission to tap into your memory, your servers, etc. And the president of uh, AOL th thinks and says, 
hey, what if I said no? Uh, what would the government do if I refused to obey the court order? Uh, so, I would like to know really the mechanism by which they're doing all this stuff. And um, maybe someone could tell me. Yeah, it, there are a couple ways, a number of ways they do it. You know, the vast majority of the information the NSA collects is not through hacking. They do do some hacking. And there are you know, documented cases of the FBI, for example, seeking hacking orders in order to remotely turn on the video camera on someone's uh, laptop without that person knowing. So hacking happens. But the vast majority of what the NSA does is not through hacking. It's either through court orders directing companies to turn over information. So for example, the very first document that Edward Snowden revealed to the world was an order from the secret foreign intelligence surveillance court uh, compelling Verizon Business Network Services, which is a subsidiary of Verizon, to turn over on an ongoing daily basis uh, records of every single call that came across the network that either started in or ended in the United States. Um, so that is an example. There are similar types of orders that allow programs of surveillance directed at Google, Yahoo, uh, Microsoft, etc. Um, and then there's a lot of surveillance that takes place outside the United States, um, either through uh, alliances with uh, other countries, with their intelligence services, uh, or through uh, picking up information off the wire, kind of physical hacking or tapping, um, or picking it up out of the air using satellite uh, and radio wave surveillance, which happens. Um, but the vast majority of it is not through hacking, and you're, you're absolutely right about that. Well, they're, they're compelled by court order. They can challenge those orders. Uh, they don't have a great incentive to. And it's interesting, you know, this type of order, the one that was directed to Verizon, uh, there have been similar ones to all the major companies, and they've been going to those companies every 90 days since 2006. Uh, so each one of them has received dozens of orders. Not a single one of the telecoms has challenged that order, even though on its face it's uh, extraordinary. You know, every single, uh, a record of every single call that comes across your network, whether it's related to a terrorist or not, hand over. Um, and not a single one has challenged them, but they could challenge them. The reason they don't have an incentive is because, A, they have a very close working relationship with the government. They have a lot of government contracts, so they have an, a financial incentive not to. B, the statute immunizes them, so they're, they're not, they don't suffer any legal liability for turning over your call records. You can't sue them. Uh, and C, they're compensated at fair market value by the statute for their cooperation, so they're getting paid. Um, so they don't have much of an incentive. You know, on the other side, on the, the side of the uh, service providers, the internet, the tech companies as opposed to the telecoms. The tech companies have occasionally pushed back. Um, the, the, the last major one was by Yahoo uh, back in 2007. Um, haven't really been any major challenges from the tech companies since, although they're starting to ramp up their efforts now and they're pushing back a little bit. Uh, but they have the same uh, you know, relationships with the government, they have the same immunity provided by the statute, and they have the same provision for fair market compensation. Uh, Please introduce yourself when you come up. Uh, Greg Burke. Um, it seems we've heard that there has been a tacit kind of balance between individuals and institutions. By institutions, I mean <clears throat> maybe governments or societies or businesses and things like that over time, where there's a 
and understanding that there's a certain amount of uh, less than uh, uh, free co uh, discussion going on between each other in terms of what information uh, we've heard about, uh, you know, being polite and uh, we all tacitly never believe anything that we see on television, for instance, um, in terms of advertisements and stuff like that. And it's been acceptable over the years. There's been a certain balance. Uh, <clears throat> now we have this huge amount of technology that seems to shift the balance away from the individual towards institutions with regard to how to manipulate this interaction of the dance of uh, uh, social commerce. And um, particularly, I'm concerned now with uh, how is the individual, uh, as a responsible society, uh, in a democratic society, supposed to get the information that is uh, necessary to make decisions about voting? Um, the uh, issue here is uh, believing what you hear from politicians, from people who are actually in the government. Um, the, it seems to me that we have, uh, in our society now, created a uh, paranoia about uh, terrorism that uh, requires a lot of people to want to give up certain rights. And um, this is a, an opportunity to manipulate. And uh, I just see this huge imbalance now because people, I can't figure out what's true. I mean, how can you all on the panel here figure out what's true uh, in terms of being able to make a informed decision as a citizen to vote, both from what the government is telling you and what you see on the news. I, I read Wiki, and that's how I found out about the prison program and how uh, Google con collaborated with the government with the leaks, so that's my source of it. <laughs> this is not just happening to us. We are participating in this, and I guess that's been the psychological point I've been trying to understand, is to what degree have we psychologically moved away from this idea of the private? And I think that one could find many, many examples of a shift during the same period, and maybe even a longer, to that makes it easier for the government to, in fact, do some of these things. Um, the shift to telephone conversations in public, just simply that. Now, my wife and I were in Paris. We've just come back. And shockingly, there are not many people on the phone walking the streets. Uh, and, and it was striking the difference uh, in the two may you know two major cities in the world. In this city, you can't go a block without someone talking and hearing them, and, and that's not the case in a week of walking in Paris. So, I think there's something happening psychologically. Uh, and I, and I think we can even find it in some of our theories and, and, and uh, uh, that suggest that um, uh, uh, privacy in terms of uh, not expressing what you really think or not uh, um, uh, doing such, I'll be brief, uh, 
is in fact changing us and making us more susceptible to it. Now, it was interesting because you asked what we could do. I mean, there is some outrage and, and it's going on for a while, but it's shocking how little there is. And I'd be very curious if people don't use their phone as much or don't use email as much, knowing that potentially someone could be listening in and gathering data. So are we, it's happening to us, but I think some other things are happening. There's a psychology that is happening at the same time, uh, which is playing into this. Can, can I just suggest one thing? Because we've had this conversation a little bit today, but is it possible that most of that shift is at the margins? Because I, I suspect that if you ask the person who's on their phone walking down New York having what is usually in a conversation with a mom or a dad, and it's not usually the most private conversation in the world, but suppose that even if it is, if you ask that person, would you share with me your Gmail password? Uh, tell me your social security number. Uh, allow me to install video equipment in your home. They'll say no to those things. So you know, I, I think there's a core of privacy that persists even if there is a shift sure. at the margins. Sure. But is it, is it just well, at the margins, I, I think, well, is the question. Well, the question is, is it, is it at the, well, yeah. do you mean margin in terms of people or not? I mean, I've been in restaurants where, uh, you know, a young woman is talking to her mother and having an argument about something in which I'm privy to, yeah. and she does not, uh, she is not, uh, this doesn't seem to bother her that a complete stranger is listening to this going on. Now, do, does everyone do it? No, of course not. People, lots of people don't talk on their phones unless they really need to or just small exchange of information. So in some sense, it's not everyone doing it. But um, I do think, um, for example, etiquette which disappeared in the 60s when the idea was, no, you let it all hang out. Um, uh, there's a struggle. Etiquette books disappeared. They actually have reappeared, which is kind of, is a kind of an interesting uh, phenomena. But it, uh, it now is, you, you can't have a private fort. You, uh, uh, you, you have to make it public if someone asks you a question good interpersonal life was you gave them the, the answer. So I don't know how marginal it is, uh, but I, I would be concerned in, in this struggle with this, with government, which is what our, our major concern is here, uh, I would be concerned that it's not them just doing it to us. And if they are doing it to us, in, uh, that we are becoming more compliant uh, psychologically to it. Time for a couple more questions, I hope. Yeah. I think people are waiting or? No, I think people are. Um, I just want to ask uh, about what you guys think is the role of the psychology of fear in the way a lot of this policy has been um, crafted. Because um, it seems to me that um, the way that the NSA's role has grown sort of comports with what millions of years of evolution have forged in us. There's the classical example of uh, you have an animal in the savanna, it hears the grass rustling behind it, and it can make two types of mistakes in that situation. It could uh, worry that there's a threat uh, and turn around and then there's nothing, which is a mistake. Or it could assume that it was just the wind, but it's actually a predator and it's dead. 
Um, and so, of course, evolution like pushes us in the direction of uh, leaping at a threat that may not be present. And it seems that um, the, our reaction to one very significant but is relatively isolated terrorist event has uh, had a very profound effect on our governmental policy and the way that we all sort of uh, accepted changes in our own security. And so because this is such a deep-seated, strong, evolutionarily formed uh, predisposition, I, w I wonder if there's a real plausible way of, of, of fighting against it because it's such a, um, such a strong urge. I'll just add, I mean, before the, the human nature component of this, uh, we'll just add that there's a whole layer of mediated repetition of the trauma that happens that reactivates that moment too, right? So the annual um, replaying of the images, the you know the the you know Bush's um, you know uh, the security codes and the, the color codes and the constant reminding of people that we're at, we're at war, right? So I think regardless of whether this uh, you know what it touches in terms of sort of the, the sort of basic dimensions of being a human, the cultural mediated dimensions are very political in terms of that can be changed. Like there's no reason why uh, we have to say, well, okay, well, this is a defining moment of our entire senses of self as, as Americans because we've been attacked, um, in, which is something that you know, co other countries around the world go through on a daily basis, yeah, right? So this sort of American exceptionalism is something also I think that is a cultural dimension of this fear that it's not just something we, that- We have been at war as a society we haven't stopped from the Second World War. We had the Korean War. We have been, we have had an enemy. I mean, we could start looking at paranoia and try to understand or, 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 or uh, um, uh, uh, we've had an enemy for the last 75 years. There's always been an enemy. That's true, but at the same time, the 9-11 acted like an acute trauma, in some sense, was unexpected. I mean, we, we should have expected it, but people didn't expect it because we've been fighting out there. We haven't had something hit us in quite this way. So it acts like a, a traumatic event to which it's almost like we're acting, all of us, in a post-traumatic neurosis. I mean, in the sense that we're always on guard against the repetition of the trauma, and that gets extended into policy and into the public arena in such a way as to cause a whole shift in our world. Since that happened, we've had a, a major shift in this country towards alarm, alarm signal reaction. You know. And I don't think that's going to be easily reversed. You know. <laughs> Um, I have a slightly different focus. I was struck by your analogy of the, uh, the supernatural detective who could figure anything out retroactively. And the uh, assumption of this broad data collection is essentially, I think, that if we have the data, somehow we can reconstruct the past and do so with great accuracy uh, or with sufficient accuracy. And I'm thinking immediately of a couple things. One is um, Google Books, where Google is going around uh, scanning books. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of actually looking at these books. They're terrible. Uh, nope, they scan them, 
but they don't proofread them. And I know, I mean, I've got downloaded some of these books. Some of them are unreadable. They're gobbledygook. Uh, I notice, for example, even here, we have to have technicians coming around constantly adjusting to get, I mean, this is open recording. With, you know, there's no secrecy about it. Uh, and yet it takes apparently a great deal of uh, tending to make sure that you get a good recording. Um, you know, great deal of data. Who, obviously if we, if we record everybody's data, technically if it were all listened to, it would mean that everybody would have to be working to listen to everybody's data. Uh, you know, there's a mathematical problem almost. Um, um, the, the existence of the data, I think, often gives people the idea that somehow the data is knowledge, whereas often I think it's not data but interpretation. And I'm also responding to uh, the personal experience of having been the subject of a government investigation many years ago for political activity during the Vietnam War. And I got a copy of the investigative report and I wrote a response to it which began with the sentiment that as a taxpayer I was greatly disappointed in the low quality of the investigation. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to bother to go, but it was, it was, I was appalled. I said, this is what they came up with? How much did they spend for this? Um, so I, I, um, I think in part what I'm, I'm saying here is, yeah, there's an issue about the collection of data, but there's also a, an issue, I think, about the perception of almost... Um, you know, supernatural knowledge and so forth, which I think is very, very questionable. But it, you know, knowledge or the perception of knowledge also is power. So I don't know if anybody wants to comment on those comments, but the, those are some of my... Yeah, I would say, right, I mean, that can be very politically disabling to think that there's nothing that can be done. All this data is is out there. The government is perfectly efficient, as we were talking about efficiency, and like creating the algorithms that can detect all these things. So, so the notion of that actually shifts a kind of power dynamic that says we, we can't do anything about it, um, but it's also it's just so perfectly done. I mean, that when I study well, conspiracy theories, that sometimes that's what they... Uh, Stasi at the end of right. uh, East Germany and the efforts to reconstruct and understand what people thought they, they knew and also, of course, to find out, in many cases, with great sadness, who had been informing them. Exactly, and that's the thing. And yeah. I think that was also the, the feeling of distrust uh, and the, ability, the inability to, to, to have a working democracy, basically, in an, in a, an environment of such potential betrayal and distrust. Yeah. You know, the lesson of the 9-11 the Commission report was not that we didn't have enough information, but, but that we didn't analyze it properly. Uh, but the response was to collect more. 
uh, out, of, out of a fear that, or, or a suspicion, I suppose, that if we just have more information, we'll solve But you're right. You know, data can lie, which is one of the reasons why the government relies more heavily on metadata, because metadata is, doesn't lie as easily, <laughs> um, or, or it's, more easy, it's more difficult to, to, you know, to obscure. But um, I think that's a good point. Carl Kleban from New York. Um, I think the panel's covered a whole variety of different things, and it's hard to be um, focused. But I wanted to bring the discussion back a little bit more to what Dr. Lewis was starting to talk about, I think, uh, which is rather than the issue of national security and spying and the threat to civil liberties or the uh, restrictions of civil liberties that have always happened when those things have been threatened and how much worse all of this could be now with the, and is with the uh, explosion of information and the explosion of the technology and the accessibility to information. What interests, uh, what interests me more, uh, in no way to slight the importance of all that, but what interests me more is uh, the information that we give away so unwillingly and the implications uh, of that. And that is, you know, all, uh, given the accessibility on the internet of uh, all the data, including our financial data, our medical data, our legal data, our personal lives, what we do and what we don't do, how we spend our money, etc. cetera. Uh, I wondered if the, uh, if the panel could comment more about this psychological, social, and even political ramifications of that, leaving out for the moment the special issue of national security and, and, uh, and uh, national safety and versus, but the whole change in privacy uh, or the way, and the way in which, at least in America and maybe in the rest of the world, we kind of willingly are, that's sort of gone or largely compromised. Well, if Thank I can start with that. So, so it's a question about the freely and willingly. Um, uh, this, uh, I think it was Maurizio Lazzarato who said, right, in the 60s, self-expression was a sign of freedom. Um, uh, today, it's, a, it's, it's an obligation and a compulsion, um, which is, uh, and not just a psychological one, but an economic one. It's an imperative that people create digital profiles, um, young people do, right, in order to be able to get jobs, right? So, so that's one way. It's like this constant need to express oneself, to show oneself uh, digitally, communicationally, in order to connect with the world. There's partially that. I think there's also, there is a, a change in what it means to share. Um, I don't think it means people just, you know, produce everything and, and, and without thinking about it. I mean, um, there are new words, I'd say, in our only vocabulary. Only adolescents on the, Sorry? only adolescents texting to each other. Sorry, are adolescents texting to each other? I mean, that's a particular form of communication. I mean, texting, right. yeah, sure, sure. Uh, um, they're also doing that too, yeah. So, so I, I'm thinking about words that have entered the vocabulary like oversharing and TMI, which young people also use. Right? Too much information, right? Um, so it's not as though it's, it's un, unfiltered. Um, I think the questions of etiquette, protocol, and what these filters are um, haven't been part of a discussion enough um, but we're not also asking young people um, enough, like, how are they already managing this privacy? They don't want parents looking. They don't want employers looking at, at everything, right? Um, they don't even want their partners, their romantic partners, looking at all of their communication either. Uh, so the, I, I would just want to complicate the notion that it's this sort of this flood um, that almost is, is, is coming from individuals rather than a, a social um, compulsion, again, around um, 
express yourself or there's something questionable about you. If you don't express yourself, if you're not available, um, uh, if you're not on call 24-7, says the family, says uh, the job, um, says reality TV, right? You're hiding something. So I think that what we've lost is a notion that, yeah, that we might want to say like there's something worth hiding, um, which is a different one than just saying people are just giving uh, freely and willingly. But, but, but what is it worth um, protecting, not just his privacy, but his secrecy, which might be a little different too. And, you know, I'd also suggest that it's, it's maybe more a difference in degree and not necessarily a difference in kind. You, you've always had to share extraordinarily personal information uh, in order to obtain certain services. It's true now your medical records, for example, are often available online, but those medical records used to reside in your doctor's office. The digitization makes them more easily accessible and brings you know, with it complicated questions about informational security and privacy. Well, there's um, another kind, though. Uh, again, the audience has more gray hair than, uh, uh, than the population at large. But clearly, I mean, uh, you go into a restaurant and someone's taking a picture of what they're eating to send to someone as they're eating it. Uh, or they're describing what they're doing in the here and now. And um, so these are another kind of information. But, but it's hard to compare that to what would have happened 50 years ago when the technology didn't exist. If you put that technology well, in the hands of someone... Point. My the, point yeah. is the technology allows for it. Yeah. And I do believe there are social rules, psychological uh, or, uh, things that are changing uh, in modern uh, um, uh, societies which are inducing this uh, loneliness. I mean, silence, not having, uh, you know, not having it light all the time or, you know, being in the dark. Uh, we evolved with light and dark. Uh, we, we don't have to be in the dark anymore. Uh, uh, we can go on and on. Uh, you can talk to someone in a continuous fashion. Uh, we're texting in cars as we're driving. I mean, there is a lot of insanity uh, if you look at it from a cultural point of view that are going on. I mean, it, yes, you, you come, you have a nice dinner and you talk about it. Uh, you say, gee, we went to this wonderful restaurant and you should go if and we had this dish and you describe it if you're a foodie. But now you can take a picture of it and not only show it later, but show it at the time you're eating it. But you're not going to show it later. That's the thing. I mean, so, so why not just think of it as temporality? Like, I'm doing it now. I don't have to deal with it later. Mm. Um, so it's a moment where it interrupts the present, but it, it just because of no, the difference of temporality. Present. Does it? it takes it out of the private. It takes it out of eating the meal, at least either by yourself or with the person you're eating with. And now you make it a public eating. This dessert is now a public act. Uh, now, if you think about it, okay, I mean, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but it sure as hell is a new thing. Well, it's mm -hmm. always a public act. You're in a well, restaurant yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah. The question is how big the audience is. <laughs> We're has, streaming this event, right? Or, or it'll be streamed yeah, yeah. at some point. Well, has, the, has the role of privacy changed in, in child development and families? And I think it has changed. Yes. Yes. It's an evolving thing. It's no longer the strict... Yes, kinds well, of demarcations that used to exist. That no, itself no, is a historical was, uh, artifact. That yeah, kind my of father was not my friend. He was my father. And now fathers <laughs> have to be friends. Uh, 
you know, uh, and what, what, what does friendship require? Well, friendship requires, to, you know, a, a reciprocality, uh, which means giving up some of your privacy. I, I actually have been trying to understand that. I'm not sure it's a good thing. Uh, I'm just not sure that it isn't leading, indeed our parenting is not in fact leading uh, a whole generation, a whole new set of generations, almost two now, to in fact not to just to know everything. And, and, and this is part of it, it's ongoing knowing everything. Now that's a setup when you say there's danger out there and we're going to protect you because you're used to it to begin with and now you've got a, they're giving you some kind of what seems like a good reason uh, which of course as you were saying isn't I mean uh, one you have to analyze this huge amount that you're collecting which is not easy to do but but the fact is I think there is a psychological change and I think we as older people in fact are not as susceptible to it and I know as I the young and look at the public behavior uh, I mean uh, others in the room look at I mean, in a therapeutic sense and, and, a, and a different kinds of behavior but uh, in a public behavior I see things which are just out of out of my experience. I think we have time for one more question. So that's the... two. <laughs> two short ones. Mine's short. Okay. Hi, I'm Alexi Kalatrakis. I'm an analyst here at New York Psychology. So I, I had I, I think going through a few of the things I'm here oh, closer. Sorry. Um, trust and mistrust. Can you believe anything, or can you you know? Uh, certainly at the governmental to private citizen level, but I think it also comes up in the use of the technology in families and, and talking about child development. Um, sometimes I'll have parents in my office who will say, you know, um, my kid's new phone has GPS on it. Should I track them? Um, well, maybe. Uh, and then hopefully we can get into a discussion of what would the purpose of tracking them be? What information would they gain from that? What would they do with that information? Um, and uh, then it doesn't become an easy yes or no answer at that point, which I think is good. Um, it can come up in other ways. Uh, you know, is the government benevolently listening to everything, or are they really just looking for terrorists? Or you know, one of, I think, Obama's not finest moments was basically telling us, don't worry about what the NSA is doing, right? But in a family, that might be okay. In a family, uh, a teenager might come home with alcohol on his breath, and a parent may think, should I say something? Should I not say something? Well, that depends. Have you talked about this before? Is this the first time? Is this the tenth time? And hopefully what's there is a, situa a relationship in which you can maybe trust your teenager to a certain point, but not too much, uh, but that it's established and that you can count on it in some way. Obviously, when we're talking about private citizens and the government, we can't do that. Some people feel you can't trust anything they say. Some people feel, well, you know, they probably know what they're doing. So that's why we have rules, and I'm very thankful we have people like you uh, <laughs> uh, guarding our, uh, but the balance of those things. 
Uh, but I think it comes up uh, in, in other ways too. One other comment just on the uh, issue of uh, sort of groups and dissent. Uh, who was it? One of the Times op-ed columnists from many years ago wrote a column saying, never use your credit card, always pay cash. <laughs> right? It was the libertarian guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, and I thought, well, why? I mean, I, it's easy to use a credit card. It's convenient. Well, okay, but I'm not doing anything terribly embarrassing on my credit card or subversive. But if I were a little bit, then I would probably want to be able to pay cash and not worry about it and not have myself targeted in some way. So I think uh, with texting and with every email being possibly recorded, we may be making a white bread society where it's really dangerous to say anything that's a little too provocative if you're a student who wants to go to college one day, God forbid somebody from the admissions office somewhere should see your Facebook, where maybe you were holding a beer and you were underage, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I'll just say that in the 1980s, the Kennedys had, a, had a, uh, an album called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. And I think <laughs> 40 years ago to today, it still works. Um, quick comment, I don't have a Facebook profile and I have experienced a certain amount of peer pressure to get one. I've had friends say to me, come on, it's fun, and, and I feel like an anomaly that I don't, and, and um, so it's been, that's been interesting. I know I'm missing out on certain information from, from the community too. Um, but my quick question is, were you recommending that individuals encrypt their email correspondence, and if so, how do we get the information? <laughs> I'm happy to talk to the technology effort if you like. Uh, you know, it turns out if you encrypt your emails, there are special rules that apply for the NSA's collection, and they can collect and keep that information indefinitely under pretty much any one of their programs. Uh, so the more you try to protect your privacy, the more susceptible you are to NSA surveillance. Now, they may not be able to decrypt it immediately, uh, but they can keep it so long as, uh, as they deem fit. I think this is really one of the fundamental paradoxes of the situation. It's mm. the hackers are the people that are like, you know, involved in protecting our privacy. It's the, these kinds of dichotomies. Yeah. No. Don't draw attention to yourself. And there are rules, you know, there are interesting questions about the role of attention and direction of attention in terms of constructing the self when you have all of this information equally available. Yeah. The one thing that technology can do is make passive or pervasive or dragnet surveillance costly enough not to be effective. It can force the government to engage in targeted rather than dragnet surveillance. And the virtue of that is that uh, you know, the government then will use its limited resources where it should. Um, and it turns out, even if you encrypt your communications, it's, it's very easy to encrypt your communications in transit. But it's very difficult to secure your endpoints. It's very difficult to, sec to secure your laptop or to secure your, uh, your desktop. And that's because Windows and Mac and all of these operating systems are fundamentally insecure because they're too complicated to make secure. Um, and so if the NSA wants to get to you in a targeted way, they can. Uh, and there's nothing to stop them. And that might be a good thing because they're generally, when they use their resources in a targeted way, are focusing on the right people. Um, and so technology can make untargeted surveillance difficult and force the government to engage in the type of targeted surveillance it should be engaging in. So if I could say yes to you and 350 million other people, I would. Um, but if it's, if it's just, yeah, you know, we can talk about it. All right, thank everybody for coming and for participating so thoroughly. And thank our panelists very, very much. Thank you. Thank you.